you. That in order to have a really nice sadhana program at home, that you think in creative ways. If you can't do something in the morning, you can do something in the evening. If you can't do something at the same time every day, then you do something at different times, different days. You don't think, well, the only way we can have sadhana is it has to be like a brahmachari in the temple from 4.30 to 9.30 in the morning. And if we can't do that, then we won't do anything. So be, be creative in your thinking and find solutions that will work for you. So generally when I teach this, generally when I teach this, we discuss different ideas. So I'm not going to do that now. And the other thing is how to, the other thing we're going to look at, you have a paper that has mostly white space on the front. There you go. All right. So this is a little guide as to how you can keep yourself enlivened in your own sadhana when you're raising children and working and so many things. So we're suggesting here several items. And the first is to get practical help. And this may be very difficult when you're away from your uh, mother and father or your in-laws and sisters-in-laws and so many things. Some of you have family here and some of you, your family is another place. But to try to work within the community so that we create... I don't touch my feet this time. So that we create our own kind of spiritual family and that we help each other out. Oh, sometimes the children can play here or there. We come together as much as we can. I noticed that some of you come together for a morning program, right? And you go to different people's houses. So this kind of practical help. Then making sure that you really get spiritual nourishment, that you're not always just going, 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 running, 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 running. But you really take time to have quality spiritual life. And that could be, you know, sometime on a daily basis and sometime on a weekly basis or monthly or yearly basis that you're really taking care of yourself. You know, you cannot run a machine on batteries forever. You have to charge it. So also for yourself, Prabhupada, Prabhupada said, highest principle is to save others and higher than that is to save yourself. Because if you don't save yourself, how can you save anybody else? You know, on the airplane with the oxygen mask, you have to put on your own first, right? Okay. The next is to have some association with fans. By fans, we mean just like supporters. Like there are people who are fans of a singing group or a, a sports team. So people who are encouraging to you. People who will say, it's so wonderful that you're raising children in Krishna consciousness. Uh, they may not even understand what you're doing or know the details of what you're doing, but they're your cheering squad. Then we also want to have association with people who will correct us. 
We need to have at least, everyone needs at least one person in their life who can say, this is wrong. You're, you're, you're off here. This is not good. So everyone needs at least one person from whom we are willing that we are humble enough and trusting enough that we can take correction. And then to associate with people who are also doing your same service, to have some time when the parents get together and can talk with each other, and then you'll find, oh, the problems I'm having, everyone else is also having. This is just normal. How do I deal with it? So you're not just alone. So I have on this sheet something that you can please do at home. It's a self-evaluation. And you can go through and see in which of these areas you are strong and in which of these areas you are weak to help yourself become better in your sadhana. Okay, then the other paper you have is a little unusual. So as parents, we may feel discouraged, and this devotees in general, not only parents, if we cannot be completely steady with all of our practices with our children. So maybe one day we have a wonderful time reading Bhagavatam with our children, the next day this is happening, that's happening, right? And sometimes we feel very enlivened, and sometimes we may feel very discouraged. So on this paper, which is again something I suggest you read at home, normally I read it out loud. So Srila Prabhupada talks about, first we have a quote from Srila Prabhupada from the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 14, where he says, where Krishna is explaining to Arjuna the symptoms of a person who is transcendental to the three modes of material nature one who does not hate illumination, attachment, or delusion when they appear or long for them when they disappear. And Srila Prabhupada in that purport talks about that as long as we have a material body, our material body and mind is going to be affected by the modes. Sometimes we are going to feel full of energy, sometimes we are going to feel tired. And that is going to happen not only with the body, but also with the mind. Sometimes the mind is going to be full of enthusiasm and sometimes the mind is going to be tired. But the devotee remains neutral and says, I am not this body, I am not this mind. Simply a neutral observer, one who does not hate illumination, attachment or delusion when they appear or long for them when they disappear. So I've included here something very unusual. I don't do this in, in most of my seminars. I included here a quote from one very famous Christian writer, C.S. Lewis. Maybe some of you are familiar. He wrote the Narnia books for children, which are a kind of spiritual fable. And he also wrote many other books. And he wrote one book particularly that was guidance for the neophyte practitioner of religion. It's a, it's a very wonderful uh, book. It's a very funny book also. Anyway, so this is a, a section from that book. And he's talking about how in this world there's always ups and downs. Same thing Prabhupada's saying in the purport, that the modes are coming. As long as we have a material body, the modes will be there. And C.S. Lewis is talking about 
what is the value of the downtimes? So maybe actually, if you have an extra copy, I will read it because it's, I think it's very powerful. This one, yes. You can read it with me if you want. Has no one ever told you about the law of undulation? Oh, I see that the, the uh, diacritics got all messed up. As spirits, humans belong to the eternal world, but their bodies and minds inhabit time. This means that while their spirit can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in continual change, for to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation. Undulation is like a wave. The repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back. A series of troughs and peaks. Troughs like a valley. You can see this undulation in every department of life. Interest in work, affection for friends, physical appetites, all go up and down. As long as one lives on earth, periods of emotional and bodily richness and liveliness will alternate with periods of numbness and poverty. So by poverty, he doesn't mean money. He means that when you feel depleted, you feel emotionally or mentally or physically exhausted. There's the same thing Srila Prabhupada is saying in his purport. As long as we have a material body, sometimes there's going to be goodness, sometimes passion, sometimes ignorance. One must ask what use God wants to make of the dryness and dullness phase. In God's efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, he relies on the troughs even more than on the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. Trough again is the valley, the down part. The reason is this. The obedience which God demands is not the absorption of its will into his, but quite a different thing. So he's saying Krishna is not asked, wanting us to merge with him. He wants servants who can become sons. He is full and flows over. He wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. So that's the concept, of course, of a chintabedabedid tattva. That we're one with Krishna, our will is one with Krishna, but yet we're individuals. And that is where the trows come in. You might wonder why God does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human beings in any degree he chooses and at any moment. But the irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his desire forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will, as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would most certainly do, would be for him useless. So some of us think like that. Why doesn't Krishna just come and control my life and make me Krishna conscious, right? He wants the living being to be one with him, but yet themselves. Merely to cancel them or assimilate them will not serve. He is prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning. He will still, we find this, right, when one first takes to Krishna consciousness. Hmm? 
He will set them off with communications of his presence, which, though faint, seems great to them, with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But he never allows the state to last for long. Sooner or later he withdraws, if not in fact, at least in their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the entity to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trow periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of being he wants it to be. Hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. He wants the living being to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Illusion is never more in danger than when a human being, no longer desiring but still intending to do the will of God, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he's been forsaken and still obeys. I think that's a very nice. So that's something to refer to. I hope you will find that helpful to you. Again, I'm sorry that we don't have time to go into this. And Usually I spend an hour, an hour and a half on this seminar. So I'm asking you to read over the quotes at home and take the self-assessment at home and particularly to meditate on how you can do sadhana in ways that are creative and useful for you. And that may change over time. What you do at one time may change. You know, something that's useful for you this year may not work for you next year as your children grow up, as you have more children, and so forth. Okay? Anybody want to comment on this before I go on to my next completely different topic? You want me to speak more slowly? Sure. Thank you for telling me. Anything else? Any questions or comments on this sadhana? No? Okay. So what I'd like to talk about now is what are the most essential things to do to help your children remain and grow in their Krishna consciousness. Now, I will tell you that the way I would have answered that question 20 years ago or 30 years ago would be very different. A lot of my assumptions, a lot of my ideas about raising children were challenged by actually doing it. And not only raising my own children, but I helped raise hundreds of other children in Krishna consciousness. And I'm also, of course, very familiar with many, many children and how they were raised and how they came to Krishna consciousness. And looking also at general, at the Shastra and at general psychology of child raising and of the psychology of religious development. We should note that the psychology of religious development in someone who's born into a family of devotees is different 
than somebody who becomes a devotee as an adult. Now, if your parents were already Vaishnavas, it's the same. But if your parents were demigod worshippers or something else, and you practically, almost like you converted to Krishna consciousness, the, the psychological development is different than the children that you are raising. And what will enliven you in your Krishna consciousness will be a little different for them if you've raised them from a young age in Krishna consciousness. So we're going to look at four things. And each of these four things is so powerful that if you do even one of them and do it well, the effect is very large. Am I slow enough now? That's good? It's just okay? Should I be more slow? It's okay? It's a little hard to drink milk when you're speaking. All right. The first thing, think about how traditional societies passed on their culture and their philosophy and their tradition to their children. Now often, if we think about how to do this, we will say the most important thing, what will most people say? Most important thing is practicing, setting an example. But I'm going to tell you a little secret. That's not true anymore. That's important, but it's no longer the most important thing. Not that long ago, maybe 70 years ago, that's not so long ago, people were much more isolated. 70 years ago, 1940s, you couldn't easily call someone on the telephone from America to India. I don't think you could make a phone call at all across the Atlantic. I mean, I remember when we were in America and my sister moved to Israel. She moved to Israel in the 50s. And we couldn't call her. If we wanted to communicate with her, we would send a letter. It would take one month to go, one month to come back. And my father bought a tape recorder. In those days, tape recorders were big machines, reel to reel. And we would, all my mother, my father, and I, we would make a recording, and we'd put in a box, and we'd mail to my sister. And she and her husband would listen to our recording. They would make a recording and mail back. And that was how we would communicate, just imagine. And, of course, there was no Internet. Even when I was a little girl in the 1950s, you could not take a jet plane across the ocean. You had to take a propeller plane. When I flew across the Atlantic when I was three years old, it was in a propeller plane. So people were very isolated. Communities were isolated. There wasn't instant news. Now there's really instant news. But in those days, it wasn't like that. Even television was very new. People would get the news from the newspapers, but that was often months old. Or at the movie theater, they would show. Again, it would be many, many months. So the, the children, people in general, were not so exposed to ideas that were different from that of their community. 
if you're in a community and there's just not this communication going on. So you see what your parents do, your grandparents, your aunts, your uncles, the other people in your town, your village, and you don't see anything else. You don't even know there is anything else. Just like here in these Muslim countries, they are trying to do that. They're trying to make it so the children don't know there's anything else. They were even telling me in the books, they don't have the word pig. They, if it says pig, they black it. Like there's no pigs in the world. Like <laughs> the pigs don't exist. And they're blocking internet. Of course, they cannot block everything now. That's not possible anymore. Impossible. Anyone can put up a satellite on the roof, right, or find some way to work around and people get on a plane and go to another country. In those days, you could teach just by example. You didn't even have to explain anything. And this, of course, is one reason why that so many Indian Hindus have rituals that they don't know why they're doing them. Because you didn't need to explain anything. You didn't need to have any knowledge. Everybody was doing it, and there was no other example, so that's what you did. The parents could just say, that's what you do. What were you going to do? You wouldn't even enter your mind to do something else because you don't even see it. And if you did do something else, you would be ostracized from your community. You would be nowhere. You would have nowhere to go. Just like in Lord Ramachandra's day, exile was like death punishment. If you wanted to give someone the death punishment, but for some reason you didn't want to kill them, you exiled them. Today, how are you going to exile somebody? You can exile them from one country, but you don't have to live in the forest if you're exiled. So many times I see, especially people who still have kept some of the traditional culture, people from India, China, places like that, they're still thinking all we have to do is set an example. My dear friends, this is not true anymore. That's over. Finished. Finished. Your children will see your example, yes, and they will see so many other examples. Your example will be competing with 10,000 other examples. Absolutely guaranteed 100%. Example is still important. I'm not saying example is not important. Example is very important but it is no longer enough. There was a time when it was enough. For your grandparents, it was enough. For us, it is no longer enough. If you rely simply on example, you'll not make it. And we, we see that we are losing. <laughs> I see the Indian youth, even in India, what you speak of out of India going and fast not slowly and often the Indian youth outside of India they are worse than the Western youth you know this 
the Indian youth in London, I'm very good friends with many people in the Pandavasena. I do a lot of service with them. And then many of them have told me, they said the Indian youth, they're worse. They're more degraded because they're trying to prove, oh, we're just like everybody else. No? So example is not enough. If you are relying simply on example, most likely you will fail. So the first thing we're going to look about is look at is relationship. Again, in, if 70 years ago, 100 years ago, you would follow your mother and father, whether you liked them or not, didn't matter. You didn't have to like your father. You could just be afraid of your father. And still you would follow, because everybody's following. You understand the difference? But now, my dear friends, you will follow your father only if you like your father. Only if you really care, what does my father think of me? Am I right? And, and I remember, maybe 20, 25 years ago, the Indian youth, they were doing nonsense, but it was still secret. To the parents, they were pretending they were good. Now it is open. Now they don't even, even external respect is not so much there anymore. Still more than the Western kids, but it's going. So one needs to have actual friendship. It's interesting, Bhagavatam talks about that the brahmachari should live at the ashram with a vow of friendship with the guru. And there's a wonderful lecture by Srila Prabhupada in, I think, 1976 in Mumbai, where he's talking about Gurukula and brahmachari life. And there he says, if you don't love the guru, why should you follow him? Why should you obey another human being unless there's love? So Prabhupada doesn't say they're just examples. He says there has to be love. So it's the same thing between the parents and the children. If there's not a relationship of love, they will not follow anymore. So why do we follow people we love? If you think about why do you trust somebody, who do you trust? Well, we trust people if they know what they're talking about. That's why, like yesterday, when devotee was introducing me, why do we introduce a speaker? I've thought about this many times. What is the purpose? It's to establish trust. If someone doesn't introduce me and I'm in a new place, then I'm really working very hard the first 15, 20 minutes of my speaking. Much harder than if somebody introduces me. Does that make sense to everybody? So you trust somebody if you think they actually know what they're talking about. If I ask somebody, you know, just like if you get sick, so many of your friends will say, why don't you do this, why don't you do this, why don't you do this? But maybe they don't know anything. And the second thing is if they care. So if I care, but I don't know, you're not going to listen to me. And if I know and I don't care, you're not going to listen to me. I may use my knowledge to hurt you. You have, when we really trust somebody, it's that someone who has knowledge and they actually care about my welfare. They're going to use their knowledge for my benefit. Now, anybody that we believe this about, rightly or wrongly, 
We try to mold our lives in such a way as to please that person. It's, it's quite interesting. There is a, a book on behavioral science. I, I really like this book. It's called Don't Shoot the Dog by Karen Pryor. And she talks there about training anybody how to train another human being or yourself. And she writes about, she's been a trainer of animals and she's also a psychologist. She writes about that if you're training animals, if you work with very, very young animals, if you try to train them by punishment, they will not learn anything. She said after they get a certain age, they will respond to punishment, but very young, they won't. And her conclusion is that living beings are not wired to obey, but they are wired to please. And I, I, it really struck me because Krishna doesn't really want us just to obey. That's Sakama devotees. That's, that's a very low level. Krishna wants us to try to please him. And he wants to try to please us also. So your children have a natural inborn desire to please their parents, and they have a natural inborn desire to please anyone who cares about them and who knows what they're doing. So if you establish a relationship with them of trust, they will want to please you. So my main example for this for me is my own father. And I had a, a very different experience with my mother than with my father. So my mother would stay up late every night. My mother would watch television till like 2 in the morning and then sleep until 10 in the morning. And my father would wake up every morning at 5. And from the time I was 2 years old until I went to college, he would wake me up in the morning. I would get up maybe 5.15. And we would spend the time together until he went to work and then or until I went to school when I was a little older. And he would tell me stories, and he would play games with me, and, and he would get my breakfast ready. I mean, my father didn't cook, but he would squeeze fresh orange juice and toast some bread and things like that. And he would just be with me. Now, my father was the CEO of a big multinational company, uh, he was a temple president, not a Hare Krishna temple. But I talked about it a little bit in one article. No, I do not want any more. Thank you. And because my father gave to me of his time, he gave to me of himself, we became very good friends. And because we were very good friends, I mean, he was still my father. He was a father friend. He wasn't a buddy friend. <laughs> but because we had this relationship of love, anything my father asked me to do, I would do. Now, well, starting when I was three, he said to me, don't ever smoke. He said, if you ever smoke, I will take you to the hospital. This was before it was common knowledge that cigarettes cause cancer. There was no warning on the cigarette pack. On television, there were cigarette advertisements all the time. Everybody could smoke everywhere. Very different from today. 
And like in my secondary school, 90% of the students smoked. But I never smoked. Only because my father said don't smoke. No other reason. All my friends smoked, everybody. But because my father said don't smoke, I didn't smoke. And because, why? Not because I was afraid of my father, but I wanted him to like me. I wanted him to be happy with me. I wanted him to be pleased with me. I didn't want to do anything that would hurt him. Now, I didn't feel that way so much about my mother. My mother did not spend a lot of time with me. She was always busy going here, going there, doing this, doing that. She didn't work. In those days, most late women didn't work. But she had a charity. She worked for charities, so she did volunteer work. She was always religious charities, and she was always going here and there for her charity work. And I was, I always felt like I was number 10 on the list. So many other things. I, was, I felt like I was a showpiece. Here's my daughter. See how cute she is. See how smart she is. Like that, you know. But I didn't feel that relationship. If she was with me, it was always to do something. Let me take you to a museum, or let me take... So we were always doing it, you know. Either we were not together at all, or we, were, or we were doing something. Whereas my father was just with me to be with me. We were trying to do something. And so when I got to be older, if my mother said something, I didn't necessarily listen. I didn't care so much. If my mother said, who is this friend you have? I don't know if it's a nice friend. I didn't care. She liked my friend, she didn't like my friend. But my father, I cared. It's very interesting, when I decided to join the Hare Krishna movement, my father was completely supportive. He said, I'm so glad you're looking for God. He said, I wish you'd do it in our own religion, but what's important is you're looking for God. If my father had not been supportive, I don't think I could have joined. I really don't think I could have disobeyed my father. But my mother was very opposed. She was crying and hysterical and you're, you know being a traitor to your people, and oh, my God. It took my mother 10 years before she could accept that I was in Krishna consciousness. But it didn't matter so much to me what my mother thought. I mean, I would have liked it if she, but it, didn't, it wasn't so important. I wasn't going to mold my life. I mean, I loved my mother, but I wasn't going to mold my life by her desires. Why? I didn't feel she even knew me. So first thing is to have a real relationship. I mean, that's real. Where you're still the authority, but you're a friend. And you know what? If you do that, then when your children grow up, they will be your friends. Which, by the way, is very nice. I'm very blessed that all three of my children are also my good friends. It's not just official. Oh, there's my mother. <laughs> you know, but we're actually good friends. We can speak heart to heart. And remember, your children are going to be exposed to many, many examples. I don't care how much you try to protect them. I'm sorry. You cannot. I'm just. You cannot protect your children 100%. You cannot. It's not possible. I'm not saying you shouldn't try. You try to protect them as much as you can, but I'll tell you right now, you will not succeed 
Um, I'll sign my name in front of the deities. You'll not succeed 100%. The only way you'll succeed 100%, you'll have to go to some, you know, forest somewhere. And But even in the Himalayas, they're watching television. Right? Even the jungle tribes in the Amazon, they're watching television and getting internet. Where are you going to go? You're never going to let them go to anyone else's house? Never lock them in your house? I mean, what will you do? So you want your children to trust you so they'll come to you and they'll say, should I be honest? You know, you want them to come and say, oh, you know, I went to so-and-so's house and he was watching pictures of naked people. What should I do? You've got about a 30 40% chance that's going to happen. Figure it's going to happen. But you want your children to be able to come to you and say, this is what happened, what do I do? Does that make sense? And if you don't have that trust, it won't happen. Now also, you want to be careful about who your children get close friendships with because we try to please our friends. So if they have, we try to please people who love us. So if they get close association with degraded people, then they may try to become like that. When we talk about peer pressure, what we really mean is the pressure to try to please people that we believe care about us. Sometimes we also try to please people who we believe have power, but that doesn't go as deep. So if I think someone has power and they can get me what I want, I might also try to please them. But I may not change my whole character. But I will change my whole character for someone who loves me. So be careful who your child becomes very intimate with. Asat Sangha Tiaga is such a main tenant of our practice. Don't associate with the nun. Don't intimately associate with the nun devotees. And this means not only yourself having this relationship, but to help your child have these kind of relationships with other devotee children, with other devotee adults. They should really feel a network of loving relationships. So that's the first thing. We're going to get at four things. And again, I'm going to emphasize that any one of these things is so powerful that if you just do one of them, that may be enough. Okay, the next thing we want to look at is something that traditional societies do that we do want to continue. So in the traditional society, every evening, what were people doing? Hmm? Not just kirtan. And what were they doing? Worship. And what were they hearing? Yes, Ramayana Mahabharata. They were hearing stories. Every culture of the world transmits its value and culture through stories. Stories, stories are much more popular, uh, much more effective than philosophy. And they're much more effective than direct instruction. So if I say to you, you should be honest. Don't tell a lie. Why are you telling lies? You shouldn't tell lies. Do you feel inspired? Anybody feel inspired? No? 
But if I tell you, oh, there was this little boy watching the sheep. You all know this story? No? There's this little boy watching the sheep. He was to make sure the wolf didn't eat the sheep. And he was so bored. Oh, there's nothing to do watching these stupid sheep. Ah, I'll, I'll, I'll pretend there's a wolf. And so he goes into the town. There's a wolf, there's a wolf. And everybody goes. And they're looking, looking, no wolf. Oh, he was just here. And he thought, oh, that was fun. And again, he's watching the sheep, and he's bored, and he's bored, and he's bored. You know, maybe I'll try that again. That was so much fun. And he runs into the village. There's a wolf! There's a wolf! And they run, and they run. No tracks, nothing. He was over there. I saw him over there. And the boy thought, oh, that was fun. And again, he's watching the sheep, and another week, two goes by, and then he says, oh, I'm bored again. I'll oh, say there's a wolf. And again, he goes into the town. Wolf, wolf, and again they come. And there's no wolf. Yeah, there was, there was, really, there was. And he's watching the sheep, and he's watching the sheep, and then there's a wolf. Attacks one of the sheep, and the sheep are crying, and he runs into town. Wolf, wolf, and nobody comes. So what's more effective? The story, or why are you telling lies? Right? Now why is the story more effective? First of all, stories are fun. Most of you know this story, and you still enjoyed hearing it again. Correct? Stories are fun. We like stories. Everybody likes stories. You know why we like stories? Because Krishna likes stories. Leela, Krishna is having one story after another. We, we enjoy them. We are all designed for stories. And we don't enjoy somebody yelling at us. It's not, it's not pleasurable. Another thing is that if someone's yelling at us, we become defensive. Why I didn't tell why are you telling me I tell I didn't do that. Instead of hearing the instruction, we fight it. But if I tell a story, I'm not attacking you. I'm just telling a story. You understand? So there's no defenses. And we're enjoying. So we take all of our soldiers and we say, This is a story. All of our, you know, they're all standing at our and we said, just relax, it's a story. So it goes in, past our defenses. Then another interesting thing about stories, and this is from psychological research. When we are listening to a story, or watching a story, or reading a story, our brain and our muscles are behaving almost as if we were actually doing what the person in the story is doing. So you may know that athletes will often meditate on doing the action of the sports. Have you heard about this? That if somebody's playing tennis, they may just sit and imagine themselves playing tennis. And they found that if a person imagines himself playing tennis, that all the muscles actually start working 
and the parts of the brain start working and the muscles get two-thirds of the workout they would get if you were actually playing tennis. And the same thing happens when you hear a story or you read a story or you watch a story. It's basically you're practicing the same thing. So when you hear this story of the boy, you are experiencing about two-thirds of what you'd experience if you were actually the boy. Interesting. So it's, you're getting a direct experience. You're learning through experience without having to actually have the experience. If you actually had the experience of this little boy, you would actually lose credibility with your friends. But you get to have the experience and learn from the experience without suffering on the gross level. And then, of course, if it's stories about Krishna, then there's also a transcendental aspect. So when you're hearing stories of Krishna, they're literally transforming the heart. Whatever stories we hear change us. Whatever stories we hear change us. When I was a teenager, the idea of working for the ecology was not in society. Science and technology was going to save the world. And the people who wanted environmentalism, these people were anti-social. And I remember I was in a demonstration for the environment. And the police were, you know, watching us. The government was putting it down. How did that change? Now the opposite. Now the governments are promoting ecological awareness. How did that change? Through stories. Especially one book, Silent Spring, about waking up in the spring and all the birds are dead from the pesticides and the people who worked with the chemicals and how they got diseases from stories. People were not changed by facts. They were changed by stories. If you think about how abortion is legal, again, abortion was illegal. When I was a child, abortion was against the law. How is it now legal? Stories. They write some story. Oh, here's some 13-year-old girl, and she got raped and pregnant, and why should she have to carry? Oh, yes, that is so sad. And she went and had an illegal abortion, and she died, and oh, that's so... It affects us emotionally. If somebody talks about the facts and says there's a little baby and you're burning it to death, and we go, whoa. But you tell a story and people change. And I don't think I want to say the other topic, but there's another topic with morality that's changing in the world today. I'm sure you all know what it is. That 20 years ago would, be, would have been unthinkable. Now it's becoming legal all over the world. One country after another, after another, after another, now is making this behavior legal. Why? Stories. I remember I was in a dentist's office 10 years ago, and there was some these pictures of these very nice-looking people, suits and ties, you know, with their partner. 
respectable. They're, they're such respectable people, and they have. And then people, how can we discriminate against them? Look, as soon as you have a story, if they actually talked about what these people are doing, you would vomit, and you'd say, how can we let this happen? But if you just tell a story, oh, here's Joe and Sam, and they are having their house, and they are, and everybody, oh, yes, yes, very nice. Do you understand? Through stories, you can change culture, for good or for bad. How is materialism spreading all over the world? What is the main agent? Advertisement. Advertisements are all little stories. How else? Movies. Television, right? Stories. So if you really want your children to grow up in Krishna consciousness, watch the stories. What stories are forming their reality? And especially young children, like age one or two until five, fill them with stories of Krishna. Fill them with stories of morality, be careful what books you have in your house, what television shows you're watching, what movies you're watching, what stories they're being exposed to, and tell your kids stories. It's not about just philosophy. What is the Bhagavatam full of? Stories. The whole Bhagavatam is one big story. That here are the rishis at Namasharanya, right? With Sutta Goswami. And inside that story, there's another story of Maharaj Parikit and Sukadeva Goswami. And inside that story, there's another story of Vidura. And inside that, there's another. And there's layers and layers and layers. Again, it's interesting. Modern psychology says the most powerful stories are the story within a story within a story within a story. And that is exactly what the Bhagavatam is. If you say, oh, my auntie told me this story about her friend whose cousin did this, that is much more powerful. And that's exactly what happens in the Bhagavatam. Oh, good that you asked me this question. This question was already asked by the four Kumaras to Narayan Rishi, and they told the story that was told by Nar right? And all the philosophy of the Bhagavatam all of it, 100%, is inside of a story or sometimes a story that is within a story within a story. Bhagavad Gita is a story also, not just philosophy. It's not just ideas. It's philosophy, and what a story. Mahabharat, what a story. Krishna is not just talking ideas. He's talking ideas in the context of a battle. A battle between family members. A battle where Arjuna is fighting his own grandfather and guru. It's a story. And we're captivated by the story. Chaitanya Charitamrita, full of stories. Tell your children stories. 
Please do not have your relationship with your children be. Are you wearing your socks? Hurry up. Finish your food. Did you didn't eat enough. Eat some more. Are you making a mess? Clean up the mess. Stop hitting your brother over the head. Get in the car. Hurry up. All day long. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. What about this? What about that? You're doing this wrong. You're doing this right. Do this over here. Don't have that be your whole relationship with your children. Tell them stories. Do we have lots and lots of wonderful stories? Do you know that Mother Yasoda tells Krishna stories every night? Of course, she tells him stories about himself, but she doesn't know it's about himself. Right? Mother Yasoda is telling him the story of Nasingadev, and Krishna is going to the forest, and Mother Yasoda tells him the whole story of Nasingadev, and then says, if you see any of those demons, you just ask Nasingadev to protect you. And she puts a little kavacha on Krishna's wrist, and Krishna is trying really hard not to smile. And Rupa Goswami says, may Krishna's repressed smile bless you all. So Mother Yasoda is telling Krishna stories. Not only does Krishna like to be in stories, he likes to hear them. Right? Every night, there's performance of stories. Again, Krishna's avatars in, in Goloka Vrindavan, in the spiritual world. There's actors who are putting on some drama of Krishna's incarnations. And Mother Yasoda telling Krishna's stories. When Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was here, he and Gadadhar Pandit would sit and read the stories in the Bhagavatam. They especially liked to read about Dhruva and Pallad. And they would read the stories and cry, tell your children stories. Regularly, as a natural part of life, sit down with them and tell them stories. And you know, little children, you can read the same story a thousand times. They'll not get bored. You don't need to have a hundred books for two-year-olds. You only need to have like four. And they'll read them over and over and over and over and over again. And you can tell them stories not only from the scriptures, but in Back to Godhead magazine we have many stories. Often on the internet many stories about devotees, right? Different devotees in ISKCON, what are they doing? Make it part of your life. By the way, that will help you too in your own Krishna consciousness. <laughs> because stories is, is also the way that we influence ourselves. And when you, I've seen even teenagers completely turn around and become solid devotees just by hearing stories. Just that. Only that. And I know of a family that left Krishna consciousness. They were living away from the devotees. But the children and the parents would read Krishna conscious stories, little children's Krishna books. Just part of their library. And all they had four children. All four of their children became first-class initiated devotees. And I asked them why. They said, we love those stories. Just that. So be careful what stories are there. And have lots and lots of stories about Krishna and stories that show morality and proper behavior. It's, it's definitely one of the most powerful forces in existence. So we have two now. 
a relationship of friendship and trust, and stories. The third one is that all of us are looking for meaning. We all want to do things in our life that are valuable and meaningful. Nobody wants to feel that they're useless. And if we find a place where we can be of value and of meaning, then we want to, we're inclined to go there and to do that. So you want to engage, it's fine. You want to engage your children in meaningful service as young as possible. And then they will feel, I want to be in this society and this community because it gives me meaning. Now just knowing that Krishna consciousness is a meaningful philosophy is not enough. I have to experience that I have value in Lord Chaitanya's mission and Srila Prabhupada's mission and in my community. I believe that one of the reasons the Bhakti Riksha program is so successful is that you quickly make people leaders and give them responsibility. About two years ago on Prabhupada's disappearance day, I was in one temple and I asked everyone to write down an offering to Srila Prabhupada, not of Prabhupada, you're great, but Srila Prabhupada, this is what I would like to do for your mission. And I told everyone, pretend you have no problems with money, no problems with talent, pretend you have no material impediments at all. What would you like to offer to Srila Prabhupada? And I said, you know, even if you never get to do it, just offering it in the mind is also accepted. And who knows? Who knows? Prabhupada will read your offering, Krishna will read your offering, and if they approve, maybe they will give you. I've seen it happen, actually. I tell them stories of how people had some desire in service and wrote a letter to Prabhupada or to the deities, and then it was, it happened. So we took maybe 10 minutes, and everybody wrote this letter, it meant most people, and so many people came up to me afterwards and said things like, until today, nobody ever asked me how I wanted to help the mission. They just said, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. So you take the children from as young as possible. 14 at the absolute oldest, better at least by age 11. And engage them in the yatra. Prabhupada says we want to bring Krishna consciousness to the whole universe. So that's enough work for everybody. I don't know how he's planning to take it to Mars and Jupiter, but... So he says many places in the universe. I don't know if that's other lifetimes or we go in spaceships or how that works. But this is enough to do. And have the children not just do what I would call grunt work, but have them do work that where they will learn meaningful skills. Let them learn layout. Let them learn how to organize something. As young as possible, they should do work where the other adults in the yatra give them as much respect as they would give to another adult. 
You know, children always want to become adults. That's the main thing driving them. I want to grow up. I want to grow up. I want to grow up. Which is good because growing up isn't all that great. And if they didn't have a, a huge desire for it, they would just stay home and let us take care of them forever. Correct? But children, they have this great desire. They imitate the adults. They want to be like the adults. Well, give them a positive way to be an adult. Again, this one thing. I was in a community where the temple president, many years ago, where the temple president understood this principle. And all of the teenage children of the devotees had meaningful responsibility at the temple. Every one of them. You know, and, and one of them said, I'm responsible for the garden. I'm responsible for this. And they were not proud, not like arrogant. But it was, you know, this is, this is my service. So my, my field particularly is, is uh, what I did my thesis on was job satisfaction. I looked at, uh, I uh, researched job satisfaction of every single teacher of children in the Hare Krishna movement in our schools. And one of the main reasons we're happy is a sense of responsibility. A feeling that I have to do this. If I don't do it, it's not going to get done. People are depending on me. What I'm doing is important. Just like with your deities, if you think, well, Krishna can feed himself. I'm just offering food as a ritual. Uh, you're never going to really get close to Krishna that way. But you should think, Krishna needs me to feed him. What I'm doing is important. If I don't feed Krishna, he'll be hungry. One should feel needed. So to engage the children and work where they are genuinely needed. I mean, children's programs with classes and teaching them philosophy, that's very good. More important is getting them involved in the mission. And Prabhupada wrote this. He said, the children should do what the elders are doing as much as possible. Get them involved. I was recently traveling with one of my grandsons in India, and he really wanted to work with a particular project. He talked about it all the time. He did research about it. He was so excited. So I wrote to the, we were going to that temple, and I wrote to the devotee in charge. And I said, Prabhu, we are going to be there for two weeks. My 14-year-old grandson would really like to do some service for your project. And he wrote back, sorry, we do not let young children in the office. 14-year-old boy. We do not let young children. So that's the third thing. Meaningful service, meaningful, fulfilling service where the child can be treated like an adult in terms of respect, where the child can have some real responsibility, where they can be learning some valuable skills. I will also say that that can help the child for their career. By the way, I discovered this kind of by accident. So we used to run a gurukul out of our home, and later my husband ran a business out of the home. And when you're running a business out of your home, you naturally engage your children in helping because they're there. 
you don't really do it because you have some kind of plan or some philosophy, but they're there. Oh, could you make this photocopy? Could, we, could you do this for me? And when they worked for my husband's business, he would even pay them something. So I remember when our youngest son was four, I think we paid him like 50 cents to take out the rubbish and things like that. But from doing that, our children all learned because my husband ran a computer business. So both my sons were programming by the time they were 12, 13 years old. By the time, again, they were 12, 13, they could take a computer apart and put it back together again and troubleshoot a computer. Why? Because that was what we were doing. And I was always having to do different layout and design things for the school. They all learned how to do that. Because I was running a school, they all learned how to teach. It was just natural. And it was very interesting uh, that both my sons got jobs before they finished their college degree. Very good jobs. Actually, my youngest son was the second down managing an international textile company when he was, I think, 22, before he finished his undergraduate degree. So he was going to school and working, and he got his degree in business administration. But all the other people in school, they had no business experience. By the time he graduated, he had all this business experience. But he started that at home. He was helping my husband run the business. And when he was seven, he started his own business. He would sell pencils and erasers and notebooks to the children in our Gurukula. You know, and my oldest son, he got a program, he worked uh, also for the BBT, he got a programming job, and he also got a programming job. Everyone else in the office, they had their master's degrees, and he didn't even finish his bachelor's. And he was working in the job. Eventually, he finished his bachelor's. So he had, they, they both had so much experience going into the job market. And they could say, I got this experience in the Hare Krishna movement. And both my sons will tell me, they said, people always say to me, where did you go to school? And they can say, I went to a Hare Krishna school. I learned how to do this in the Hare Krishna movement. What are they going to feel about being a member of the Hare Krishna movement? You can just think about that. They're going to see that being a member of the Hare Krishna movement, not only did it give me spiritual values, but it prepared me more than people out there in the world just cramming for their exams that don't know anything practical. And then, of course, they're also learning to be responsible. They're learning to work with other people as a team. And they're learning to follow instructions, so many things. Give them real responsibility in the mission. Okay, so we have love and trust, stories, and actual, valuable, meaningful, satisfying work. Okay, those are all pretty easy to understand. This last one is one that people never guess. Usually I do this seminar with a flip chart and... But anyway, not tonight. This last one is, is very, it's a very funny one. It's something we all know about. It's in all of our lives. We're all affected by it. But my guess is that nobody here 
has ever purposely and consciously used it to help themselves or others. So I'd like to ask you if there's some smell, some food, some music, some place, some person, some activity, some time of day that evokes a strong emotional response in you. Yes? How many of you have, have some strong emotional response to something like that? You smell something and it brings back some memory. Yes? Or a certain music or place. Who has something like that? Isn't that interesting? So in psychology, these are called either anchors or triggers. And now it's not just that we remember, we re-experience. You smell something and you re-experience something very positive or something very negative. Or you go to some place and again, or even just thinking about the place. Or seeing a picture of the place, or certain activities, certain people. And again, it's not, a, it's not just a memory. You, you have an emotional experience that can be positive or negative. Now, if it's negative, what are you going to do with those things? You're going to avoid them, aren't you? And if it's positive, you're going to keep trying to have association with them. You're going to keep getting things with that smell or keep playing that music or keep going to that place, right? Now, how do these two things, how do these form? How do these triggers form? They form in one of two ways. Either one strong experience or many weak experiences. So I gave you the example of my father. Now, my father was with me always in the early morning. So I got an emotional association between love and warmth and friendship and the early morning. And I didn't realize that until many, 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 many years later when there was some, uh, we had some teenage children who were staying with us and one of them didn't like to get up in the morning for Mangal Arctic. And I thought, why doesn't he like it in the morning? I love it in the morning. And then somehow I realized, oh, it's because of my father. I have an emotional association between early morning and that time with my father. Now, that was a repeated weak experience, repeated again and again and again and again. Now, another example is we used to live in Detroit, Michigan, which is right on the border with Canada. And Canada in Windsor has a large Indian population, so there were a lot of Indian grocery stores. So we would drive over the border into Canada to go shopping. And one day I asked my daughter, you know, would you, I'm going to go to Canada, would you like to come with me? So she came with me, and when I went to the store, she said, Mata, I don't want to come in, can I wait in the car? I said, yeah, I'm only going to be five minutes. I'm just going to get some basmati rice, something, you know. So she waited in the car, and when I came back out, she was hiding under the dashboard. I said, what happened? 
She said, Mata, I saw some man in the parking lot, and I think he was one of those bad men that kidnap little children. And she told me for years after that, if she heard the word Canada, she would shake. So that was one strong experience. And this is how these triggers form, either repeated weak experiences or one strong experience. So we all, we all know this, right? But do you think about it? Have you ever thought about it in terms of Krishna consciousness? What triggers are we giving our children related to Krishna conscious practice? Remember, one strong experience or repeated weak experiences. What is the emotional content? What is the emotional experience that we are associating with Krishna conscious practices for our children? Now, again, all societies use this, which is one of the reasons why there are celebrations and festivals in every society in the world. There's many reasons, but one of them is to give people strong, positive emotional experiences that are connected with that culture. So you'll want to be part of that culture. So be very, very careful. I know of people brought up in Krishna consciousness who don't like to chant japa because during japa time, their teacher or their parent was chastising them. And they were having a repeated negative experience over years and years and years. And I know one woman, I mean, she's now 40-something probably. She said she can't, she can't pick up japa beads. She said as soon as she goes to pick up japa beads, she, she, she this, this reaction. Now those things can be, you can reprogram yourself. There is a science how to reprogram yourself, but be careful. There's, you know, in the nectar devotion, it says you're not supposed to chastise anyone in front of the deity. Now, I'm sure there's many reasons for that, but one of them is you don't want people to have a negative association with the deities. If you chastise someone in front of the deities, then as soon as they walk in the temple room, they may again relive that situation. I remember when I was, I've taught this many, many times. One time a devotee came to me a few days later crying. And he said, Ormila, I finally understood why I don't like to go in the temple room of this temple. And he said, for years I was feeling guilty and confused and I thought there was some, I was offensive. He said, I finally understand what happened to me. And he was just so grateful that he could see that somebody had established a negative trigger for him in that temple room. So be careful. You have a space in your room by the altar. Keep that space not just physically clean, but emotionally clean. That's not the place to chastise your child. If you need to correct your child, take them to a different place. Once I learned this science of triggers I, as a teacher, I never corrected any child while I was standing at the board for teaching. I created another place, and any time I had to correct 
the group or the child, I would walk to that other part of the room and do it from there. I didn't want to mix anymore teaching with correcting and disciplining. Disciplining was over there. Teaching was over here. I want to keep it clean. Just positive. So think about the place where you perform Krishna conscious activities. Think about the time. I have a positive trigger associated with a time of the day. There was one U.S. president. We had actually two U.S. presidents where both father and son became president, but not the Bushes. There was John Quincy Adams and John Adams. And I forget who, which, who was who, but the father had 14 children, and one of the children became president. And he was saying that what his mother did is she had one hour a week for each of her 14 children that she would be just with them. And his time with his mother was Thursday at 6 o'clock, 6 to 7 on Thursday. That was his time, just him and his mother. And he said his whole life, Thursday from 6 to 7 at night, he had this positive feeling about it. So think of the time. If you have a set time when you do sadhana, again, do your very, very best that you're not correcting and yelling at your children. And Can't you resist? And haven't I already told you that a hundred times? Not at that time. Unless it's an emergency. You know, if your child's hitting the other child over the head with the rock, you know. But unless for an emergency, do it at another time. And if you have to do it at that time, Move the place. So the, your main Krishna conscious activities, japa, kirtan, deity worship, shastra, think about what emotional atmosphere am I creating? Okay, get the Bhagavatam. What's wrong with you? Don't you want to read Bhagavad Gita? All you want to read are those comic books. Don't you care about philosophy? What are you doing? When you're doing that, you're creating a negative emotional trigger. Now, you never know what's going to cause a trigger. You just don't know. Who knows? Why does, you know, why is cardamom become a trigger for you and not for you? Who knows? But why take a chance? Set up positive emotional triggers as much as possible. I had... Many years ago, one of my children said to me, Mata, why do you always like to pick up the mail, the post from the mailbox? I said, I don't know. I was trying to think about it. And then I realized when we were uh, building our school, one time when I got the mail, there was a check in the mail for $35,000 donation for the school. And I, I opened it standing at the mailbox. I walked down the driveway and I opened it and I saw it. Oh, what is this? And I opened and I, I was reading it standing at the mailbox. And then, oh, now we can build our school. And I realized that that one thing had given me this huge positive trigger about getting the mail. So every day I wanted to go get the mail. <laughs> so, you know, we see this happening with different festivals in ISKCON, the Kirtan Melas and the whole idea of Japa retreats and... You know, some of it's operating on a spiritual platform and some of it's operating on a psychological platform. So that's the last thing. Those are the four things. A relationship of love and trust, stories, meaningful, satisfying work, and being aware 
of emotional triggers. Having positive emotional experiences connected to the practice of Krishna consciousness. Any one of those is so powerful that even one of those by itself can help a child say, yes, I want to be part of Krishna consciousness. What to speak if you have all of them. So again, if you had asked me 30 years ago how to make your children Krishna conscious, I would have said, okay, make sure they go to Mangalartik every day, make sure they change up every day, and they only eat prasadam. And I would have given you an answer like that. And over the years, I saw that that wasn't enough. Just wasn't enough. The other things also have to be in place because we're dealing with the psychology of somebody who didn't, as an adult, say, okay, I want to be a devotee. When you, as an adult, make that decision, you're willing to put up with a lot more stuff. <laughs> Your commitment is coming from a different kind of place. So I don't think I can take questions just because I've been worked very hard today and other things, and I'm exhausted. So I want to thank you very, very much. I'm sorry that I don't have the energy to take questions. And that tomorrow I have a 12-hour journey, and the day after that I have another journey because of somebody's not very intelligent planning. So I don't think I can do any more. Thank you very much, and I am so happy that I decided to come to Muscat. I almost didn't, and I'm, I'm really, really happy. I hope you're happy that I've come. <laughs> and uh, if, I've said, if I've said something that you think is foolish and ridiculous, just ignore it, please. And if I hope I've said something that you can use. If you don't feel that you can use all of it, then please take whatever parts you feel you can use. And I hope that this helps you. I, I think it should be obvious that what I've talked about is not only relevant to children. I, I, is that obvious? Yes. I think it's also very relevant to how we deal with each other and how we deal with new people and how we build and grow our community. So again, if there's anything I've done that is upset any of you, I know that I have no, I'm just a barbarian who's chanting Hare Krishna. <laughs> uh, please excuse me. And I hope I get to see all of you again. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna, Mataji. Thank you very much for your...